Good morning, and welcome. <laughs> oh, welcome, Dr. Kata. Right on time. <laughs> Sixty-six years ago, Harry S. Truman established a commission to look at the functions of higher education in a democracy. That commission concluded, our society is desperately in need of men and women capable of giving wise leadership, the kind of leadership that can come only from those who have read with insight the record of human experience, who know the nature, career, and consequences of human values, who sense the meaning of the social forces <coughs> operating in the world today, who comprehend the complexities and intricacies of social processes, and who command the methods of rigorous thinking. So, as we begin this workshop today, some of you may be saying, wait a minute, I thought this was just something on diversity. Isn't that all just about numbers? Well, my friends, one of the things that I would have you understand is that the, one of the, the uh, sort of before the colon, this is the title of our presentation, but the series that we're engaging in is a series called Inclusive Excellence. Because whereas we talk, within, I would say, um, in the old days, we talked about diversity. And in those days, we were really following what I would call a civil rights model. Why? Because we had some injustices to redress. We had some, some, some ground to make up. But one of the things that happened as we began to pursue our, uh, it, the interests of diversity is that we realized that, it, we, that we needed much more than just to change the melanin content on a college campus to truly affect the education. One of the, uh, uh, a, a scholar, uh, from Claremont University, Gerald Smith, actually gave us four things that we needed to do. We needed to focus on access and success. In other words, we weren't just interested in getting in, in students into the institution, we needed to get them through the institution, right? Access and success. Then we needed to talk, but he said that's, that's still not enough. That's still not enough. We need to talk about um, intergroup relations and climate. That is, once you've got diversity on your campus, what are you going to do? How are you going to make it work for you? And then relate, closely related to that are the, is that we also need to work on education and research. We can't, if we really think about what diversity does, it's more than just the people, but it also has to do with the major product of the university. That is what we do in our classrooms, and then as faculty, how it guides our research agenda so that we are in a, in, in a continual process of discovering what's new. And if you think about it, as diversity has increased on college campuses, we now have, it's, it is almost um, regular to expect that we're going to have a women's center, that we're going to have a center for African American studies or Africana studies, of Hispanic studies, and on and on. So that is the way in which we can see education and research uh, playing a big part of this new role as we begin to talk about inclusive excellence. And finally, we have to talk about institution viability and vitality. If you think about it, the institution of higher education is only going to be as good as our next big idea, right? Because we have to constantly be moving on. And we can only do that when we understand that part and parcel of our, of our project is to embrace divert, di those who are different than we are and figure out how to engage them in conversations and in the intellectual processes of the university, right, to continue our work. And so that has been the work um, of, uh, of Inclusive Excellence. And so this, this morning is brought to you um, not just from the Center for Multicultural Affairs, but this is a, a joint project with the Vice President of uh, Academic Affairs. So if you want, and there, this, uh, we started uh, last month with a wonderful presentation by William Smith on um, uh, racial battle fatigue. And uh, we have this presentation today and then coming up at the end of April, we will have uh, a presentation on recruiting diversity um, into recruiting and retaining diverse faculty and staff at the university. So that's uh, an overview, and it is my great pleasure to introduce, not the speaker, I guess you were getting excited, <laughs> but I want to introduce um, a young woman who actually came to me from the University of Michigan, who now is a part of the Villanova family. Uh, and has been doing an incredible job, not just of uh, doing research, but of also facilitating our intergroup dialogue program, as well as really do, uh, facilitating these, 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 these kinds of lectures. She is, I think, a conference queen. I'd like to introduce to you our own Dr. Bridget Dwyer.
Cherry. Um, quickly, housekeeping, I will send around this sign-in sheet for those students who are here that need to sign in for their class. So um, I'll start it here and just pass it around. <laughs> All right, so can everyone hear me? Mm -hmm. Yeah, great. Uh, so welcome and thank you all for being here today. It's wonderful to see such a packed room for this uh, really important topic. Um, so I am pleased to introduce uh, Patricia Gurren. So Patricia Gurren is the Nancy Cantor Distinguished University Professor Emerita of Psychology and Women's Studies at the University of Michigan. She's a faculty associate of the Research for Group Dynamics at the Institute for Social Research and the Center for African and Afro-American Studies. She directs research, she directs the research program of the Intergroup Relations at University of Michigan, a curricular, a co-curricular program, excuse me, a curricular program co-sponsored by the College of Letters and Sciences and the Division of Student Affairs. A social psychologist, Dr. Gurren's work has focused on social identity, the role of social identity and political attitudes towards behavior, motivation and cognition in achievement settings, and the role of social structures in intergroup relations. She is the author of eight books, at least eight books. She has another one coming out soon that we will be hearing about today. She has written numerous monographs and articles on topics of diversity. She was, in, most importantly, I think, she was an expert witness in the University of Michigan's defense in its undergraduate and law school admissions policies in the affirmative action cases for the university. In collaboration with several colleagues, including her husband, uh, for the, in, and the Center for the, post, Center for the Study of Post-Secondary edu Higher Education at the University of Michigan, she provided the expert report on the educational va value of diversity for the lawsuit. Dr. Gurren is also still very involved as an instructor on University of Michigan's campus. She's actively involved with residence life and training the residence life faculty and, and staff. Um, and I have been very fortunate to take a course with her during my time at University of Michigan. So it's my pleasure to welcome Dr. Patricia Gurren. So before I start, I'd love to know who's in the room. So if you're an undergraduate student, would you raise your hand? Yay! Grad student? Oh, well, we don't need them, right? <laughs> uh, faculty and staff at Villanova. Faculty and staff at other universities. Uh, real people in the, in the community. <laughs> okay, that's wonderful. So I'm delighted to join my colleagues, uh, Charles Beeling, who's down here, and Monita Thompson, uh, who are going to be here till sa through Saturday, working with a group of colleagues um, at Villanova on intergroup relations, intergroup dialogue. And I'm especially thrilled to get reacquainted with Bridget. Uh, Bridget was in a class that I took part in some years back at the University of Michigan, and then lo and behold, there she is yesterday picking us up at the airport, and it's wonderful. So thank you for inviting me. I'm thrilled to be here. Okay, let's move it. Something seems to be wrong. Okay, we're okay now. So what am I going to do today? Well, I'm talking about engaging diversity, which is what you've just heard. Diversity is not a stage set. It really isn't what it looks like on this campus. Right now, the important that we have to consider all the time is how are we engaging the diversity that exists for educational benefit? What's happening that makes this really become a zestful, vital, educational experience for all people. But I want to position the importance of diversity that occurred in those affirmative action cases. And in some sense, I want to disentangle engaging diversity from its origins within affirmative action. I want to make a case for its importance beyond those affirmative action cases. 
I want to present intergroup dialogue as one educational approach. It's not the only one, but it is an effective one, which you'll see today, that addresses the challenges that I think are facing the United States and many other countries. And I want to discuss what a 21st education, 21st century education should look like and why intergroup dialogue is one of the ways in which we can achieve that. All right, let's look at the affirmative action cases. Baki in 1978, which provided really the rationale that's been used ever since for defending affirmative action based in the educational value of diversity. And then Grutter versus uh, Bollinger and Gross versus Bollinger, which were the University of Michigan cases in 2003. And now Fisher versus the University of Texas, which is before the Supreme Court at the moment. The hearing has occurred and we'll have a decision sometime this year. So in those cases, the value of diversity played a crucial role. There are two things you have to show in order to use race constitutionally. After all, we knew from the 14th Amendment and the 1964 Civil Rights Act that race is a suspicious category that shouldn't be used unless there's some compelling reason to use it. So showing compelling state interest is the first criterion for being able to use race constitutionally. And second, we have to be able to show that we've used race in a, what they call a narrow, tailored way, which essentially means don't use it too much and make sure you've tried other alternatives before you use it. So we have to do those two things. And to do those two things, we have to have evidence that's presented to the courts that we indeed have a compelling state interest and that we haven't used race too much. In 1978, there was practically no empirical evidence that diversity accounts for educational gains for anyone. It was contended, but there was really not a social science empirical base to offer. In 2003, I was part of an initiative to present to the court what that evidence looked like at the time. But at the time, we really didn't have much evidence except these kinds of studies that say, let's take students before they take a given class, let's measure them, have some idea about what went on in the class, and let's measure them at the end of the class. And if they changed, then somehow that was evidence. It's a kind of pre-post research design. Well, is that real good evidence? It's not bad, but suppose those students would have changed anyway. Maybe they wouldn't have taken the course. They might have changed in exactly the same way just by being in college that semester. So what was really needed, and it was not there much in, in 2003, is strong experimental evidence where you randomly sign some students to take that course and you hold some other students as a control group where you can say, look, whatever happened to those two groups of students, it was because of that course, because they both wanted it and only one group randomly got it and the other group didn't. So experimental evidence is really, really important and it basically wasn't there in 2003. Well, there's much more evidence now that's going forward into Fisher. I refer you to the amicus briefs that are on the University of Texas website they're rich with empirical support for the value of diversity. And what I'm presenting today on intergroup dialogue adds to that scientific work showing the value of diversity and contributes, therefore, to the continuing rationale for using affirmative action. Now, why do we need affirmative action if we want diversity? Because in many places in this country, K-12 <coughs> is still not preparing students the way it should be preparing students and therefore, having affirmative action policies is one way to assure that we get more diversity on campuses than we would have without. Okay, but diversity is important way beyond affirmative action. So let me turn to three challenges that I think uh, we have to engage diversity in order to meet the challenges. First, there's a huge, huge demographic challenge going on coming from the changing demographics in this country. Secondly, there is a big democratic challenge. There is a need for engaging diversity to help people understand 
the growing inequalities in this country and what that means for democratic practice. We know that people engage best in a democracy when they have a stake, both economically and politically. And whenever there's lots of inequality, that's a threat. And thirdly, there's what I'm calling the dispersion challenge, or what we might think of as the rise of the rest. And all of these challenges face the United States and many other countries. They all demand a group of leaders going forward in the 21st century that know how to deal with diversity across this country and the world. So let me turn first to the demographic challenge. Most of you know the facts. You know that by 2042, we will be a majority-minority country or minority-majority country, however you want to put it. And much earlier, <clears throat> among young people your age, at least by 2023. And why is that happening? Well, it's happening a lot because of this. White babies are no longer the majority babies in this country. And babies turn out to be elementary school children. They turn out to be high school children. They turn out to be college students. So the pipeline is clear. It's going to be a majority pipeline of, of kids who are not of color. So we know that this is what we're going to face uh, in this country. And we already know some of the implications of that. It was really, really clear in this election who voted for whom. So let's look at first Latinos. 71% voted for Obama. 73% Asian Americans. 93% African Americans. And 39% whites. So the growing involvement of Latinos in this last election, that is more numbers voting and more decidedly voting for Obama even than in 2008, and the Asian-American presence with Obama changed this election. That's why Obama won. So the political significance of this demographic shift is not, is not lost on anyone. And in fact, the fact that we're talking about comprehensive immigration reform is a direct consequence of what happened in this election. Republicans are worried. It looks like there may be possibilities now for some kind of an immigration uh, act, uh, law this year or shortly. And yet neither the Republicans nor the Democrats said a word about immigration during the actual campaign. So this election did it. Demographic shifts are powerful. I want to argue, however, it's not just politics. It's every aspect of our social life that's going to be affected by the demographic shifts that are upon us. Every, every aspect. Higher education is going to be extremely affected. Here are the projections for what higher education will look like in 2050. Community colleges, the blue bar on the far left, uh, far left, right. 57% will be Latinos. 25% will be whites. 10% will be Asian-Americans, 8% will be African-Americans. Four-year public institutions, 44% Latinos, 33% whites, 15% Asians, and 8% African-Americans. The only institutions in 2050 that will still be predominantly white, as Villanova is, are private four-year institutions. So higher education is going to be enormously changed by the pipeline of those babies that are going to grow up. Well, if that's the case, and then it's not just, it's not just these local groups that are we all part of in the United States. International students will also play an, an increasing role in all of our campuses. And where are they coming from? They already are disproportionately from China, India, and South Korea. So our students have to be able to engage across diversity because of what our institutions are going to look like. Okay, but you could raise the question, why are we worrying? If, if this diversity is going to increase so much, why do we care about making sure that students actually interact with each other? Won't they just do that? There'll be many, many more students of color on campuses. Why won't that take care of it? Well, I want to argue two things. It won't take care of it if we don't have a very different and less segregated society residentially than we have now. 
people are still, there's less segregation than there was 15 years ago, but still are living largely in segregated environments. And secondly, we can't expect students to come to our higher education institutions savvy about how to really deal with each other across difference if K-12 still has pupil assignment based on residential areas. So our high schools and our, and our, our elementary schools will still largely be segregated unless a very, very different set of public policies occur in the next 10 to 15 years. Therefore, our students are still going to need to learn how to engage diversity. One might even argue that the greater presence of a larger number of students of color will provide on our campus larger numbers of possible safe havens and solidarity places, niches where students feel comfortable with people who grew up like they did. And let me be real clear, that is needed too. I work in intergroup dialogue, but both intra-group, interaction within one's own group, and interaction across groups, both are crucially important, and the safe haven comfort zone is especially important for students who are a minority on a given campus. So we're not in any way arguing today that you only do intergroup stuff, you also do all the other intra-group. It's a both and, not an either or. Okay, let me turn to the, dem the democratic challenge. I think again, all of you know the facts. There is enormously increasing inequality in this country economically. We have more economic inequality in this country today than we had in the 1930s. And it's especially in the last three decades that this inequality has been increasing. We know that, and you know it, that 80% of the net income gains since 1980 have gone to the top 1% of the population. That's why it was the 99% versus 1% in the political protests of last year. And it isn't just income. Oop. I'm going to go forward a little. It's also wealth. Wealth is more than income. It's assets. It's uh, stocks and bonds. It's housing. It's lots of things that make up wealth. The top 10% of our households in the United States have 80% of the financial wealth that exists in this country. The bottom 80% have 7% of the wealth. Moreover, and I think this will surprise you, economic inequality is greater in the United States than it is in 100 other countries in the world. We are 101st with respect to income inequality. Give you some sense of it, nine European countries and Canada have less inequality than the United States. We even have more inequality than India, China, and Iran. And in fact, the peer countries that have about the same amount of inequality as we do include some of what we, we would all think are the poorest nations in the country. Now, it is true that the poorest people in the United States have a more sustainable level of standard of living than those poorest people someplace else. But this is about how unequal we are, not just how poorly off the poorest are. And inequality is really an enormous issue for our country to face. It isn't just a political issue either. We know, as I said earlier, that people do, are more active when they feel they have a stake in society. And people need some sense that they have an economic stake in the country. But in addition, inequality affects the growth of the economy. Why? Because this economy is based on people buying stuff. And if you don't have money to buy stuff, then there's not much growth. So when we have a lot of inequality, people worry that we're not going to have as much economic growth as we need to have. I suspect that Villanova is much like my institution with respect to a kind of class isolation of privileged students living mostly 
in college campuses with other privileged students. So, in, in uh, the University of Michigan, I want to slip to the slide that's got that, and then I'll go back to these. On the very far left, where there's less than $50,000 annual income, there are 50% of the country households are like that, but only 15% of University of Michigan students. Now slide way over here to the right. That's with $200,000 or more annual income. It's only 4% of the nation, but it's, it's 31% of the students at Michigan. Now I don't have the facts about Villanova, but I suspect it's not very different from the level of economic privilege that students have. And why do we care about that? Well, because the big point is that in the 21st century, all students need to understand something about inequality and its threat to what kind of democratic society we can have. And you're more apt to know something about it if you once in a while interact with somebody who doesn't have the same class background as you and if you actually explore what that inequality experience is for the more privileged and the less privileged of our students. So it's, it's not just sociology majors, it's not just communication majors. Engineers, business students, nursing students, everyone to be 21st century leaders need to understand these issues about inequality. All right, let me throw to the third challenge what Fareed Zakaria calls the dispersion challenge. He's written this book called The Post-American World. It was in 2007 or 8, and then again in 2010 or 11, updated. It's about the rising other countries in the world. We, United States can't go it alone. There are many other countries now that have a lot of influence politically and economically. It's the BRICS, Russia, Brazil, India, China, South Africa. And since Zakaria wrote the book, there is some uh, diminution of the economic well-being of all those countries, but they're still rising. So Zakaria says, look, the United States is not going to lose all of its influence. At the political military level, he says, we will remain in a single super world. But on every other dimension, industrial, financial, educational, social, cultural, the distribution of shop power is shifting away from the United States and from American dominance. It's going to look like this. All those arrows are going from the United States out across Asia, Africa. There are very few coming into the United States. There's a few. So it's a shifting of dominance out of the United States. And we're going to need leaders who can what? Who can relate across all those shifts that will be comfortable, skilled, knowing how to com communicate and collaborate across all those differences. So Zakaria has a little, has a little YouTube that's useful.
Okay, what do we need to be ready? We need three things especially. These come from the American Association of Universities and Colleges and Universities and from an organization called <coughs> excuse me, the Partnership for 21st Century Skills. Students need broad knowledge across many disciplines. They need communication, problem solving, collaboration across differences. They need critical, creative, adaptive, flexible thinking. And I'm arguing that's what engaging diversity is all about. All three of these. And I want to continue then today demonstrating why intergroup dialogue is a very good way to get those skills. So what are the goals of intergroup dialogue? First of all, to increase intergroup understanding, to understand more about the perspectives of other groups and what their points of view are, what their concerns are, and especially to understand group-based inequalities. Inequality is bad enough for democracy, but when it's particularly located in certain groups, which we know it is, whites of this country have 30% more income than Latinos and 30%, 36% more income than African Americans. So it's especially a problem when inequality is located in certain places. Our students need to understand that. They need intergroup understanding. They need to have the experience of knowing how to create and maintain positive intergroup relationships, especially intergroup empathy, which I'll talk a bit more about in a moment, and the motivation to bridge differences. They need those experiences that produce those positive qualities of interaction. And they certainly need to learn how to, to collaborate across differences. They need practice in intergroup collaboration. Well, how do we do that in intergroup dialogue? What is intergroup dialogue? First of all, it's usually two social identity groups, women and men, gays and straights, uh, African Americans and Anglos, African Americans and Arab Americans, Arab Americans and Jews, on and on. Intergroup dialogues have two facilitators, one from each of those identity groups. At most institutions, they're a credit-bearing course, as they are now at Villanova. And it follows a four-module curriculum, generally. Every institution modifies this the way they want to. This is the way it's done in the study I'm going to talk about today. In the first module, students learn how to dialogue. You know, they don't know how to dialogue when they come. They know how to make speeches. I like to call discussion classes serial monologues. So Charles says something and I wait till he's finished and I hope he hurries up. And then I make my little speech and I'm not, I didn't pay any attention to what Charles said. So they have to learn especially how to ask questions of each other. How to follow up on somebody else's idea. How to essentially listen, ask questions and probe. That, that doesn't come naturally. We're not taught to do that in K-12. We're taught to be impressive in how well we speak in order to impress either teachers or each other. And so we haven't learned how to dialogue. They have to learn it. The second module, they have to learn about identity, how every aspect of social life is affected by who we are and, and what our social and personal identities are. That means we also have to learn how all of our identities are embedded somehow or other in the way that society is put together, how power works, how inequalities work. Thirdly, we then want to see can they dialogue about hot topics that they themselves bring forward. Before they might have argued or they would have, they would have debated. There's nothing wrong with debate. We just have to learn some other ways as well. So can they now talk about affirmative action or sexual harassment or any number of other hot topics that they choose? Can they dialogue about it now instead of debating? That's the third module. And fourth is this wonderful period when we do what we call an ICP, an intercollaborative project. So two students from each of the two identity groups 
are assigned to go out and do some project. Now, they're not very profound projects because they only last three weeks. But the point of them is not that they've done this en enormous and elaborate project, but what did they learn about working together to make it happen? What did they learn about the dynamics of intergroup collaboration? That's the point of that project. That's the last module of the intergroup dialogue curriculum. <clears throat> In many ways, this is like any other course. It has a content. It has assigned readings. It has written assignments, including a final paper. But it's also different from some classes. Not all classes, but some. There's a lot of structured interaction. First of all, we put two groups of students in the room equal numbers. So it's going back to Gordon Allport in 1954 saying, if you want to have positive intergroup relationships, you have to equate some things. And one of the things you want to equate is status and power. So you want an equal number of two groups of students so the one doesn't overwhelm the other. And then there's lots and lots of active learning exercises, and I'm going to illustrate one in a moment. The third component of this pedagogy is facilitative guidance. It isn't enough just to put people in the classroom and then the teacher leaves or the facilitators leave and see what they do. If we really knew that everybody could collaborate across difference, we wouldn't need intergroup dialogue. Therefore, facilitators need to be trained to help students maximize the opportunity in that room by actually asking each other questions, listening, probing, critically reflecting with each other, that takes guidance. What makes it work? Well, there's two sets of processes that make it work. One we call the dialogic process. And I've already talked about it. Active listening. You know, listening is not just listening with one ear, it's listening with a third ear. It's really trying to get underneath what the person is saying, truly listening. Asking questions and following up and inquiring with each other. And of course, sharing. Sharing is not so hard to do, although it's often hard to share stuff that's difficult to feel and think about. Then there are what we call critical processes. And critical doesn't mean that you're putting somebody down. Critical means critical thinking. We want students to learn to identify the assumptions each other are making. When they're sharing something, what's the assumption under that? What's the assumption under their own points of view? We especially want them to do critical analysis of inequalities. And we want them to do a lot of personal and collective reflection. So we use what's called reflection papers. They may be five-minute writing assignments during the class for people to reflect on what's happening right now. What are they learning right now? And at the end of every dialogue class, there should be there, it doesn't always happen because people run out of time. There should be a period of collective reflection. And what is that? It's everybody thinking about what we learned here today. What went on here? In many classes, at the last minute the lecture's over, students leave, and they don't think a thing more about that, that class until the next one. So it's really important at the end that we do this collective reflection of what did we learn here today? All right, I want to just illustrate what, what a, a structured learning act activity may, may be. We call this the web of oppression. As you can see, the students are all holding a web made out of string. On the web are index cards. You can even see the index cards. In turn, each student reads an index card. If it's about racial and ethnic inequality, the cards might read like something like this. One card might say, educational institutions that schools, in schools that are attended by students in urban areas, largely of color, have fewer educational resources than suburban schools. The next person might read a media card. Latinos are not seen on, as frequently on TV as whites, and when they are, it's often in stereotype roles. Labor market. Fewer jobs are located in urban environments where the majority of people of color live. Criminal justice. 
African Americans and Latinos are more frequently arrested than whites for, for drug-related offenses, and they receive disproportionately more severe, more severe uh, sentences. All right, how does the web work? We are standing silently while we read these, these cards. Then the facilitator will say, one of you drop your piece of the web. Goes down. Is the web gone? No. The web's still perfectly vital. It's not until everybody, all institutions, have been dropped that the web disappears to the floor. So there's two major things that we want students to learn from this activity that you cannot get if you just simply read statistics. One is that all these institutions are interconnected. If you don't drop them all, the web's still there. And the second is the, the huge role that institutional and structural factors play in how inequality works in our society. At the end, then, there's collective reflection about what we learned. And why do you think students learn a lot from this that they may not learn from reading a sociological article about inequality? Well, they learn it because they hear and they visually see how inequality is either created or maintained. You know, you don't see institutions. You just see each other. You see individuals. So it's really hard to get how institutions work. This is a beautiful visual demonstration of what institutional influences are all about. So it has a great power for students. All right, then the question is, well, does it work? I've explained how it's supposed to work. Does it work? Does it have effects that we say it should have? And if it does, how does it work? What's the evidence on the processes that make it work? And here I want to turn to the study that we've been doing now for some number of years. Uh, let me go back just a second. At the end of 2003, after the Supreme Court heard the Michigan cases, I knew that I, as a social scientist, was not going to do much about admissions. I don't work in admissions. But what I could do was something about filling a gap of those lack of experimental studies that we didn't have in 2003. About, well, what does diversity do? If you explicitly engage diversity, as we do in intergroup dialogue, does it have any educational effect? So I <coughs> and people from nine, eight other universities got involved in doing a multi-institutional experimental study of integrative dialogue. And it's important for several reasons. First of all, it's not a single case study. It's not just that it worked at Michigan, but it didn't work in San Diego. <coughs> it's, it's, it's an effort to go across institutions and see effects across more than one. I cannot tell you how important the experimental evidence is. Because as I said earlier, just because students change during your class doesn't mean you caused it. They might have changed anyway. You've got to have experiments in order to show that, in fact, your course is what did it. And the experimental evidence that on intergroup relations that exists outside of psychology labs, there's a lot of those. But the ones that exist in the field are largely from roommate studies. I don't know how roommates are assigned at Villanova, but at many institutions, student, and mine included, if a student wants to live with somebody from home, they're allowed to do that. And everybody else is put in what's called the random pool. And then they're randomly assigned to live across differences. There are now a lot of these roommate studies all over the country. And it's mostly looking at what happens to white students who live with students who are not white. Because at very few institutions, are there enough students of color to randomly assign them to live with other students of color they end up mostly living with white students. And the evidence from those studies are both positive and negative, as I think one would expect. Just because you throw two people into a room or four people into a room doesn't mean that they're going to have positive intergroup relationships in that room. So it's really important, not just that interaction is sustained over a period of time, which the roommate studies show they are, it's over at least a semester, but they're not facilitated. Nobody's helping those students 
have a teachable moment when intergroup conflict occurs in that, in that room. It takes facilitation to do that. So what we did was a large-scale experiment. Students apply to get into intergroup dialogue at most institutions, and at these nine they did. And they applied either for a race dialogue or a gender dialogue. And then we just randomly assigned them. They got a dialogue course or they're on the control group. This means there's a very large scale experiment going on. Here's the nine universities. I won't read them off because you can read them. This is not a sample of universities in the nation. These are places where intergroup dialogue programs existed. This study was not to go out and create these, uh, these programs, it was to evaluate them. So they had to exist already somewhere, and this is where they were. All of them except Arizona State had a direct influence from, inst from, inst from Michigan because Michigan started its integrative dialogue program way back in the early 1990s. It's had a very long history, and a lot of people have left Michigan to go start them elsewhere, like Bridget. Okay. So here's the design. The students who are randomly assigned to the dialogue class and to the waitlist control take a pretest, a survey at the beginning of the semester. Then the dialogue group gets the course. The waitlist control gets nothing. And then at the end of the semester, they each get a post-test, which is another survey. And really importantly, a year later, both groups get a follow-up longitudinal survey. Here's who the participants are. We wanted an equal proportion of white students and students of color and of women and men. And as you can see from the pie chart, that's approximately what we have. Now, we do not believe that all students of color are alike. But at no institution, including Michigan, which has the largest integrated dialogue program in the country, do we have enough students of color on the campus and applying to be in integrated dialogue courses to randomly assign students of color in different groups to an experiment. That is, pairing up African Americans with whites, or his, uh, Latinos with Anglos, or African Americans with, with, with Latinos. It just is feasible, not feasible. So this is a clear limitation of this study. What did we do besides the surveys? We did lots and lots of qualitative work. We videotaped an early, a mid, and a late session. Then we interviewed all the students who were in those dialogues that were videotaped, uh, together 248 students. You may remember that back on that slide that showed the design, there were 720 students in the experimental group and approximately that number, 711 in the control group. Then we took a big, a big step and decided since every student at all these nine institutions had the same curriculum, they had the same final paper. So we could take their final papers and do a content analysis of those final papers, 720 of them, in order to find out how did the students themselves write about their experience in intergroup dialogue? What did they say happened? How do they, how do they explain what went on there? So that's another part of the qualitative. I'm not talking today about the qualitative findings because there just isn't time, with one tiny exception. Well, what did we learn? There were 24 major measures of intergroup outcomes. Remember, we wanted three. Intergroup understanding, positive intergroup relationships, and intergroup collaboration and action. And of those possible 24 multi-scale measures, we found significant effects of intergroup dialogue on 20 of the 24. A lot of consistency across measures. Now, what do we mean by an effect? Well, students in both the control group and the dialogue group start out the same. So effect is if by the end of the semester, there's more change among the dialogue students than among the control group. That's what an effect is. So we have it on 20 of the 24 measures overall. Second question we raise, well, does that happen in both race and gender dialogues? Because we had both in this study. In dialogue world, <clears throat> there is some sense that race dialogues work better than gender dialogues, that gender dialogues are harder to teach. And I think they are harder to teach. That doesn't mean that the effects are less. And what we find, in fact, the significant effects were there on 22 of the 24 measures on both race and gender dialogues. 
And wonderfully, a year later, there's still a difference between the dialogue students and the control group students. A year after the course is over, 16 months after the whole study began, when they were first assigned to these two groups on 21 of these 24 measures. So let me show you a picture of one of them. This is intergroup empathy. They start out over there at the same, at the very beginning. Dialogue students, which is the green line, at the end of the semester, have increased in intergroup empathy. The control group did not. A, a year later, or 16 months after the beginning, the control group's done practically nothing. There is some fading in the impact of intergroup dialogue. Those of us who are teachers in this room, if we're honest, we know that what we <coughs> teach fades. They don't keep it forever. So there is some fading. But this difference is still a significant difference a year after this course is over in how much increase there was in intergroup empathy. Here's a student talking about that. I had to learn to listen carefully to my classmates so that I could better understand their perspectives and experience empathy. At times this was challenging, but it helped me to open my mind and to understand other people from different identities. Here's much the same picture with respect to structural understanding of inequality. This is the combination of their understanding of racial and gender inequality. They start out the same. That little increase among the control group is not a significant increase. It levels off, and here's the, here's the dialogue group, and here they are a year after the course is over, with the dialogue students having increased uh, more than the uh, control group, and that is a significant, reliably, reliable difference. And here's another student talking about that. And here's the picture of intergroup collaboration and action. It's a little different. They start out the same. The control group goes down. The dialogue group goes up with respect to how much increase there is at the end of the term. And here's the one, the one area that we've looked at where the control group also increased, and this is a significant increase. But this difference is still reliable. It's, a, it's still that the dialogue students increase more. Now, why would those control group students have increased it in group collaboration over that period of time? Well, college does something, <laughs> right? That's why, that's why we're here. So there, is, it, it, and there are many ways for students. I, I know many, many Villanova students do community service. So one of the ways in which you can be increasing in something about collaboration action is through other experiences. And here's a student talking about that. How does it work? I haven't put any numbers on this because it's hard enough to look at it even without the numbers. Any pathway that's on here is a significant pathway from having done a structural equation modeling of the data for the dialogue students, not the control group. Look, what we expect to have happen is that the pedagogical features that I talked about, content, structured activities, and facilitation should create distinctive communication processes in the dialogue. And it did. Both of them should then increase two kinds of psychological processes that go on within the students. One of them is cognitive. That's made up of measures of things like consideration of multiple perspectives, liking to think about complex problems, liking to think about society, and thinking about identity and how it works. That's thinking. The second is the, on the bottom, what we call affective positivity, which really means emotions. It's the emotions that are created while interacting across difference, the positive emotions, like excited, being engaged, interested, blah, blah, blah. And secondly, a measure of the quality of intergroup interactions that the student is having. So we expect that the pedagogy and the communication processes will increase those two kinds of psychological processes, and it did. They did. Then those are also expected to do something to affect our 
outcomes, those intergroup understanding, positive interactions, and collaboration. And here there's something distinctive. The cognitive thing, look at the green line, goes to structural understanding and intergroup empathy. Because both of those are pretty cognitive. Understanding inequality requires you to think. So the cognitive involvement goes with that. Part of empathy is also cognitive. Imagining yourself in somebody else's situation requires thinking. The emotional one, in contrast, goes to both action and empathy. Empathy is both cognitive and emotional. It's also about feeling what other people feel. And it turns out action requires a whole lot more uh, emotions and affective stuff than it does just thinking. You do not go out and act just because you thought about it. Something's got to get you there. And finally, all of these then outcomes are where students ended up at the end of the course as affecting where they are a year later. And one last thing for the communication people in the room. Look at that blue line. The blue line's about our distinctive communication processes that are created in intergroup dialogue. They're supposed to affect what goes on here psychologically, and they do. But remarkably, they also have a direct impact on all of these outcomes, both then, well, with one exception, and all of the ones a year later. This means that those distinctive communication processes that happened in a course a year ago are still affecting those outcomes when you're no longer in the course a year later. Now, that's pretty remarkable. So back to the challenges very quickly. All of this is what I think we can turn to with two philosophers, one Anthony Appiah or Appia at Princeton University and Martha Nussbaum at Chicago. They write separately, of course, but they're also writing about four things. Pluralistic perspective, critical thinking, often outside one's comfort zone, empathy, and the integration of our specific, our specific um, identities with global identities as well. So Appiah says about pluralistic perspective, look, there are many values worth living by. We have to expect that people in various societies and various backgrounds will embody different ideas and still imagine themselves part of a common humanity. Nussbaum says about critical thinking, students have to step away, catch this you students, you have to step away from your comfort zones, from being of assured truths, from the nestling feeling of being surrounded by people who share your convictions and your passions, so that what has been taken for granted as natural and normal turns out, you understand, to be merely parochial and habitual. Empathy. What Nussbaum calls imag uh, imagine, uh, I'm sorry, narrative imagination, being able to imagine yourself in somebody else's situation, and Appiah refers to as learning about other people's situations by walking in their shoes and integrating specific identities with global ones. In the spirit of multiculturalism and social justice and, and uh, diversity education, we are really not arguing that people should have only their own identities of importance. They need to embrace many, and they need to see themselves with commonalities. Or as Nussbaum puts it, I love this quote, students may continue to regard themselves as defined by their particular loves, their families, their religious, their ethnic, their racial communities, even their country. But they also, and most centrally, learn to recognize humanity wherever they encounter it, undeterred by traits that are strange to them, that is, working with others. So how do we do this? We do it, oop, we do it in those ways. We have a deliberate use of diversity to foster communication. We get a pedagogy that, that, that fosters active learning and especially listening and inquiry, and it's collective and private reflection. And we connect the substantive learning in the discipline to all these intercultural competencies. So I want to end with some pictures. 
These are pictures of former graduates of our program at Michigan and uh, one from the University of Wisconsin. We, in the book that we've just finished writing, we sent 12 graduates that we knew well. They're, they're not representative of anything. They're people who worked with us. And asked them three sets of questions. First, the demographic challenge. In what ways are you professionally and personally engaged with people from various identity groups, and how are you bridging differences by bringing people together? Aaron James says, my own life has been circumscribed by living in liberal urban enclaves. Now I'm working in economic development in rural areas, and I'm trying in many ways to cross cross-cultural boundaries, to understand their perspectives and bond, including learning to hunt <laughs> with rural residents. Chloe Gurdon-Sand says, my, and this is my granddaughter whom I'm very proud of, my personal and professional lives are completely intertwined. My circle of friends includes people from all identity groups. I feel I'm bringing differences and bringing people together all the time. Intergroup dialogue has educated me that personal is political and vice versa. Joshua Johnson, I'm always crossing boundaries in my work and my life. Awareness of how we relate on the basis of our multiple identities is essential. He's a community organizer in Seattle when I canvass across diverse neighborhoods, empowering people to make change. I'm promoting spaces in the community where dialogue can take place and where a sense of connection between people from different backgrounds can develop. Second question with the democratic challenge. What are you currently doing, you graduates, professionally, and how did your experiences in integrative dialogue play a role in your professional direction? In what ways is your work addressing inequalities and aimed at creating greater social justice? Denny Chan says, during my first two summers in law school, I helped litigate cases involving federal voting rights acts. I also worked on a gender discrimination case against a large corporate retailer and on a financial mortgage case with one of the nation's largest banks. I see now how I can express my concerns for social justice in public sector law. Tara Hackle, who is an engineer, participating in integrative dialogue helped me to better recognize inequalities that I faced as a woman in U of M's engineering program, then becoming more in touch with problems within the STEM fields, that is <coughs> uh, science, technology, engineering, and math, helped me realize inequalities affecting others, not just women. Kartik Siddhar, my multiple responsibilities in the program on intergroup relations has sharpened my understanding of health disparities and deepened my commitment to create change in that arena, and he's now a med school student at Michigan. Third question, in what ways are you involved with people from other countries? In what ways do you consider yourself a global citizen? Claire Vrobel, I gained a commitment in intergroup dialogue to learn about what I don't know and to keep up a date about international political movements. It should not be up to my Egyptian American friend to educate me about what's going on in Egypt. It's my responsibility to continue to educate myself and to have meaningful conversations with people from other countries. Adam Faulkner, Adam teaches in Brooklyn in a, an academy, he teaches creative um, all kinds of creative stuff, really, uh, writing mostly. In my classroom, I'm constantly trying to create settings that uncork. Remember that thing we need? Creative, flexible, critical thinking? That uncork creativity and grant my students permission to connect with the human universal desire for communication. In my life and work as an artist, he's also a spoken poet, the local is global and vice versa. To me, being a global citizen means to consider one's own role as a contributing member of society and not in isolation from the most pressing and urgent of global concerns. And here they are. There's more about all this in the book that's coming out this month. It's called Dialogue Across Difference, Practice Theory and Research on Intergroup Dialogue. It's with my colleague from the University of Washington, Bjorn Ratnesh Nagda, and Jimena Zuniga from the University of Massachusetts, and many other collaborators in all those nine institutions taking part in this book. I want to acknowledge that this, of course, this big massive study, and it was a massive study, 
could not have helped have happened without foundation support. So there's W.T. Grant Foundation, Ford Foundation, Russell Sage Foundation, and at Michigan, the National Center for Institutional Diversity in many parts of both the student affairs and the liberal arts at Michigan. And most importantly, this study couldn't have happened without my colleagues in the program for intergroup relations at Michigan, including Charles and Monita. That's it, and thank you very much for inviting me. <laughs>